Hello, we're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and this is Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast, where this week we're celebrating Easter. We remember well those events and carry that magnificent hope with us. One night, Scott and I were trying to photograph an olive tree on the Mount of Olives, not far from Gethsemane in Jerusalem, to represent the Savior in the garden. It was dark and gradually a hush and then silence fell over our world where we worked alone. Because it was dark, these photographs took several minutes and we worked alone on that mount for nearly three hours, hoping to capture a stunning photograph. As we worked, our thoughts were so sweet and reverent and we remembered well what Elder Jeffrey R. Holland had described as the Savior's Atonement. He said, we celebrate the gift of victory over every fall we have ever experienced, every sorrow we have ever known, every discouragement we have ever had, every fear we have ever faced, to say nothing of our resurrection from death and forgiveness of our sins. What a moment we'll never forget. As we consider the Savior's Atonement today, we have invited Elder Bruce C. Hafen to join us, whose book, The Broken Heart, Applying the Atonement to Life's Experiences and Covenant Hearts, has helped so many understand the atonement more thoroughly, and we especially have loved this book over the years. Bruce Hafen grew up in St. George, Utah, and after serving a mission to Germany, he met his wife Marie from Bountiful, Utah at BYU. They were married in 1964. Elder Hafen received a bachelor's degree from BYU and a Juris Doctorate degree from the University of Utah. After practicing law in Salt Lake City, he went to BYU in 1971 as a member of the original faculty of BYU's new law school. He taught and published research on family law and constitutional law. He served as the president of BYU-Idaho from 1978 to 1985. Then he was dean of the BYU Law School and later served as the provost, the second-in-command at BYU. He was called as a full-time general authority in 1996, serving in area presidencies in Australia, North America, and Europe. He also served at church headquarters as an advisor to the priesthood department, the general auxiliary presidencies, church history, and the temple department. He became an emeritus general authority in 2010, then served with his wife Marie as president and matron of the St. George Temple. More recently, he served as chairman of the Utah LDS Corrections Committee, overseeing the church's branches and Utah's state prisons and county jails. He is the author of several books on gospel topics, including the biography of Elder Neal A. Maxwell and books on marriage, the temple, and the atonement, including The Broken Heart, which we have mentioned, and most recently, a book called Faith is Not Blind, which is a wonderful book for those who are struggling with their faith or are having a faith crisis. It's an excellent book, and we highly recommend it. The Havens have seven children and 46 grandchildren. And we have known Elder Hafen for a long, long time. He is a personal family friend, and we're so glad to have him with us today. We're so pleased that you could join us. When I think of Easter, I think of a bright morning after a long, dark night, because everything that is hopeful for us in our lives are caught up in the Savior's atonement and resurrection. And 
This is a hard time for a lot of people. The circumstances in the world are so difficult and discouraging. I think we went from COVID to war to feeling personally in our pocketbooks, challenges, shortages, worries about people in our own family. And there's, there's so much to think about. And yet here is this hopeful Easter with these beautiful centerpieces of the Savior's atonement and resurrection. Respond to that, and how can we find hope when we need it so badly? Thank you, Maureen. Just hearing you talk about that prompts a memory, since you mentioned St. George, of an Easter experience that is my equivalent of what you've described. It's um, just an image, a feeling. I was a teenager in St. George a long time ago, and... On an Easter Sunday, our stake had a fireside for all of the, the youth and young adults in the St. George stake. And I was one of, I think, about eight young people, uh, four, four boys and four girls, who were invited to go inside the St. George Temple, climb up some stairs and some back rooms that I didn't even know existed, and we wound our way until we were out on the little balcony at the very top of the St. George Temple so that we were outside the temple on a little balcony looking out to see the whole world, and the rest of the, the kids in our stake were right below us, uh, sitting on the lawn in chairs. It was a, f a morning side, as we'd call it now, and we could just see the sun coming up east of us. I remember seeing the, the colored streaks of Zion National Park way off in the east with the sun coming up over it. And our, our role was to sing a song. And I, that song has stayed with me um, ever since. And it, it came to mind as, as I was thinking about Easter and as I have heard what you've said, I... It, I, it goes this way. I wish I could bring all those kids back to sing it for all of us. Uh, God so loved the world <clears throat> that he gave his only begotten son that whoso believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That's Easter morning for me. Um, it's, it's hope. I love the part about not the Lord came not to condemn. And that, um, that connects to uh, some ideas about the basic framework of atonement doctrines for me. Uh, you, you know that we've, Marie and I have been interested in trying to understand this doctrine together for a long time. And at one point, we found it helpful for us to simply see the framework doctrinally and practically for the blessings of the atonement, because the blessings go far beyond uh, forgiveness and resurrection. Those, that's where we start. But we ended up just making a little list. And I'd like to put what you've asked about in, a, in the right place in this list as we've looked for this doctrinal framework. Uh, it, we would say we start with the purpose of the atonement and then 
uh, we look at the unconditional blessings. Everybody receives these blessings, whether they, whether they deserve them, whether they even want them or not. They'll all be resurrected. Um, we are cleansed from the effects of Adam's sin unconditionally. Then there are conditional blessings if we are faithful. The three conditional blessings are redeeming blessings, strengthening blessings, and perfecting blessings. And your comment about today's world has drawn my mind to strengthening blessings. I remember when President Dallin Oaks talked about the strengthening blessings of the atonement in a general conference. It was a beautiful, thoughtful talk. And there's a place in the Old Testament where, and we're studying the Old Testament this year in, in Come, Follow Me. So it wouldn't, wouldn't be a bad idea to think of this in that context. Uh, Moses had led his people out of Egypt, and he was really concerned about where they were going. And his people had carried so many burdens, and he was personally burdened. You know, where, what am I supposed to do now must have been his constant prayer. Uh, and, and the Lord came to him when Moses needed it. For example, notice the Lord's language in talking with Moses. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God said, I have seen the affliction of my people. I know their sorrows. And then after he crossed the Red Sea with a great miracle that then protected and freed the children of Israel to keep going, the Lord said to Moses, Ye have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Therefore, if you will obey and keep my covenant, ye shall be unto me a holy nation. That captures this personal relationship between God. That was Jehovah, the, the God of the Old Testament, Christ. And he brought them to himself. One more place that my mind turns to as I look at those scriptures is uh, some verses of one of our favorite hymns. It, it was even known in the first hymn book. Uh, it was in that book. Uh, but we should sing the, the latter verses more often than we do. And, and this is, I think of these verses when I think of the world you've just described, Maureen, which, has, which is kind of stunned uh, and, and sort of disoriented all of us. The Lord says to us, when through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not thee o'erflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all-sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. To me, that's... Uh, makes it pretty clear that God understands us. The Savior understands us. He's, he's the one who's talking here. Uh, the flame will not hurt thee. I call thee to go. I will be with thee. 
the troubles to bless. Uh, well, we, if we're all in one group, everybody who's listening today, maybe we could sing that song because the very familiar music is stirring. So I would, uh, that, that's one we could all sing when it's time to, to sing a hymn. I think one of the things that really moved me about what you just quoted was that the God of the Old Testament, who is Jesus Christ, had seen their afflictions and sorrows. Sometimes my view of the Savior or of our Heavenly Father is that he sees my mistakes and my sins, but doesn't see my afflictions and my sorrows. And that, the latter, the afflictions and sorrows view, seems to be one of great compassion and one who looks upon me with with love and with desire to help me through those circumstances. One of the reasons I think the Lord can look at us that way and we can be close to him with deep understanding and gratitude that he knows what we're going through. He's been through it all. Uh, Elder Maxwell referred to this part of the Savior's experience, which is really part of that Easter season and those tremendous uh, earth-shattering moments of the, uh, the final days of Christ's life, and that was uh, in Gethsemane. And with everything that he experienced there, far beyond our ability to comprehend, uh, he, he felt what we had been through. Uh, there are some scriptures that say, uh, I think this is somewhere in a... In a uh, in the book of Mosiah, he saw his people. Um, we can see him. I think it's possible to reflect on him without understanding what he was doing. And the result of all of that, as Elder Maxwell put it, is the Savior's earned empathy. He empathizes with us because he's been there. He knows it all. And we can have total confidence that even though we don't see how anybody could go through this and survive it, what we're going through, he has been there. He knows. When I was a child and would think about the atonement, I thought that the Savior was paying in my behalf for a sin here and a sin there and a sin here and a sin there. And then as I grew older and saw that my life, as all of our lives are in this mortal experience, this mortal fallen experience, is full of error and challenge and sometimes heedlessness and lack of seeing, blindness in relationship to the way we act and are. And I realized that the Lord must have lived my entire life with me because because as long as we are sinful and mortal, these are all, all things that the Lord experienced with us and paid for us. And it made it so much more meaningful for my understanding. You know, you'd hope that uh, as we grow, our spirits would grow, our minds would grow, and we would... Uh, we would all kind of come to that. I think especially in today's church, we're, we're getting better at that. Uh, Richard Bushman gave a, a talk at BYU. In fact, it was a, 
it was one of the Easter conference messages at BYU the, the last year or two. The title of his talk there was The Atonement Then and Now. And he actually said some things similar to what you just said, Maureen, that when he was young, even as a young bishop, he saw the atonement in the w ways you have described, and he would counsel uh, people in, in those ways. But then he went on to talk about how his life has developed, how society has become more difficult, and uh, he has seen growth in the way we understand in the church uh, what the atonement is about, and that it is it is for healing, it is for strengthening, it, it, it blesses and helps us, and it becomes so much more personal in the way it attaches our uh, thoughts of, about the atonement to our personal relationship with, with Christ. Uh, and I think that's really helpful so that we don't start seeing the atonement as some new spaceship up in the sky that is, is a new source of blessings that, that isn't part of our doctrine. It's very central to our doctrine. It's what the sacrament prayer talks about. If, if, we, uh, if we do always remember him, we are willing to be witnesses of his name, uh, he will then link us to him in a relationship that gives us access to him his spirit will always be with us. It's a relationship with him. It's not just some separate uh, idea. It, and President Nelson gave a wonderful message about that once, about how the atonement uh, is the atonement of Christ. It's not some new uh, separate power. As some people start, I hear some people talking about it as if it were an independent source of uh, of of emotional and spiritual power that kind of fits the the day in which we live. It's the electronic version. It goes far beyond what uh, what uh, what normal tools and experiences can get for us. Uh, and he emphasized the importance of developing that relationship. Uh, thinking about that, something you said does help me. Uh, in one of the really strong, beautiful, memorable experiences in the Book of Mormon about what we're discussing, uh, you may remember this. Many people would know it now. About in the, I think it's Mosiah 24, where we learn about the experience of Alma and his people when they were held captive by Amulon, and the people prayed. Uh, they couldn't pray out loud because they were in bondage, and in those circumstances, the Lord said to Alma and his people, "I, the Lord God, do visit my people." Notice that, my people, not the people. I do visit my people in their afflictions. Lift up your heads and be of good comfort. For I know of the covenant which you have made with me, and I will covenant with my people and deliver them out of bondage. What covenant is he talking about? The covenants of baptism, the covenants of the temple, and that's what make us his. And in fact, uh, to the ultimate expression of that is in uh, the fifth chapter of Mosiah, after his people have listened to his great sermon on the atonement of Christ, and they rejoice, and they say they have no more desire to do evil but to do good continually. That's an important prerequisite for all of this to happen. It develops. It's not a sort of all at once kind of thing, but... Uh, if you keep reading in chapter 5, uh, Benjamin 
says, this day hath he, the, the, the Savior, begotten you. We're becoming the children of Christ. And they begin to, then Benjamin tells them they've entered the path of following Christ, the Savior. We talk about it. President Nelson really picked up on this and is helping all of us understand it. He talks about the covenant path. Stay on the covenant path. What, what, it's the path that uh, is marked out for us when we keep the covenants that we've made in, in the temple and in our baptism. And then we keep going. And again, using Benjamin's phrase, if ye are steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works, sort of keeping moving on that covenant path, then uh, at the last part of ch chapter 5 of Mosiah, right after that uh, phrase about being steadfast and immovable, if we keep going, Christ will seal you his. So that relationship that starts off as, we are the children of Christ. We've made covenants with him. Where is that going? He will seal you his. That's a temple word. And it's uh, that's worth some reflection, I think, for all of us. What, what would it mean to be sealed to Christ in some way? We've not, now we're, we've grown from being the children of Christ to being full-grown men and women of Christ. Um, that's the That's the quest of a lifetime really and that's what the covenant path is about it's where it's where we can go and incidentally there in today's world uh, i'm reminded even as i say the phrase about christ will seal you his there's another place in the book of mormon i think it's in alma 34 where amulek is talking and he's talking about satan and the power he seeks to have over his, us and as amulon describes excuse me uh, uh, Amulek describes that uh, the influence of Satan. He says words to this effect. I remember the key phrase. If we follow the path that Satan marks out for us, then he doth seal you his. That's just chilling to me that uh, he wants to take us off the path, follow him on his path the world is so full of it today but it has a destination we will become children of the devil just as we can become the children of christ and grow into that full relationship i'm glad you brought up president nelson's uh teachings of recent date because one of the things that came to my mind as you were talking there elder hafen was this quote too many people consider repentance which is part of the atonement or drawing upon the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ, too many people consider repentance as punishment, something to be avoided except in the most serious circumstances. But this feeling of being penalized is engendered by Satan. He tries to block us from looking to Jesus Christ, who stands with open arms, hoping and willing to heal, forgive, cleanse, strengthen, purify, and sanctify us. So obviously Satan's going to try to block us from having access to that power of the atonement of Jesus Christ, and repentance is part of that process, daily repentance, and it's a process, not just an event. Right. And I think uh, hearing you say that, Scott, reminds me of, the, of when I realized that uh, 
the purpose of the atonement is to help us grow and learn. It's it's not just sort of uh, one and done with a with a baptism or saying we believe in Christ. It's it's the process that helps us grow and develop. And uh, other Christian churches don't believe that uh, th- that's what their f- version of baptism does for people. It's it's to be cleansed of Adam's sin. Uh, but, but when we see that that the atonement has a developmental purpose, then we begin to see our our sins, our inadequacies, our mistakes, all of those things. We see them as part of that growth process. We're, it, we're on this path of learning, and that's why repentance is, is really a process of seeing what we've done that we could do better, and we welcome the critique instead of uh, hearing the brethren at conference or hearing uh, hearing our, our wife or husband uh, or hearing from any source, our conscience, about something we we need to pay attention to and do better. It's just like a, listening to a good coach help an athlete strengthen his skills. Uh, only a really foolish athlete would say, Coach, don't talk to me like that. That makes me feel bad. Uh, if that's how you feel, then you will never develop the skill, the strength that you would seek to have by even having a coach. I think it's interesting when you talk about development, how we see it. It it isn't just enough to be forgiven of our sins, though that is huge. Um, But something else needs to happen. I think about the example, let's say there's a woman who is praying during the sacrament because she is angry at a family member who she has felt misused and betrayed by. It's a, not a small hurt, but a big one. But she doesn't want to be angry because she notices that anger divides her from the spirit and divides her from what she wants. Uh, and so it is wonderful and lovely to be freed from that anger toward that one person. But the Lord wants to take us further to be freed from anger as a way of living, as a way of thinking about others. And then the Lord wants to take us further. He wants us to replace that anger with love, which is his bestowal, his gift. And all of those things are part of the atonement. It is not only the forgiveness of the sin, but that development. And I think it's so generous because one of the things that hurts us the most are our weaknesses, whether we see it or not. And the Lord is saying, I am here to lift these from you if you will but completely align yourself with my will, if you'll let God prevail, we together can lift these. And I think it's so interesting that sometimes if we don't see all that the Lord is willing to do through us, through for us, through his atonement, we beat ourselves up and we think, I'm not enough, I can't do enough, I fall into error, I uh, am not compassionate enough, I don't see others point of view. I don't I don't love enough. I mean, there's so many not enoughs that we can add into our, our thinking. And um, the Lord says, don't go there. We're on a journey together. And all you need to do is give your very best and rely on this beautiful gift of the atonement. And it lifts from us this sense of insecurity and misery that so many of us travel with. We're on a journey with 
with his presence with us, just like the children of Israel had his presence with them, we're on this journey and our destination is his presence and he helps us make that journey. And it's not something we can be casual about. It's not something like we say, oh, I, it doesn't matter if I do this because I can repent tomorrow. That That is really flippant way of looking at something so holy and gracious because the truth of the matter is you do have to give your entire heart but what the Lord gives back is um, a sense of ease to your soul a sense of joy that you didn't have before hope that you need and these are all his gifts to us through this mighty sacrifice of the atonement thank you for bringing that uh, into our conversation Maureen your your insight takes me back just quickly to the little list that I offered about uh, categories of blessings to understand the parts of the atonement uh, if we are faithful then following our baptism we've, we've done that part uh, as as one person has said uh, we get the weeds out of our lives then once the weeds are out our land is clear, but we can f plant flowers in in the place where we had the weeds. That's the positive part about the atonement. And um, the little framework that I mentioned suggests that in that part of our growth and following the Savior, uh, we receive redeeming blessings, uh, strengthening blessings, and then perfecting blessings. And what you were just describing about the woman in the temple and what she was wanting to go through, it's really the gift of charity, which is uh, in, in some ways then an ultimate perfecting blessing. When, when we receive as a spiritual gift, if we have been true and faithful in, every, in all that that means, then we become as he is in that sense. I think it's a, it is the love that Christ has for other people. It's the pure love of Christ. When we feel that, we can be uh, completely consumed and uh, and and change. It's it's a the fruits of, of that kind of repentance and process of growth are really abundant. This goes back a few years, and I was I was serving in a uh, in an area presidency, and we received uh, information that someone in our area had had been disciplined by a church council. He was. Uh, he had been excommunicated, and he was appealing that decision to the First Presidency. And the First Presidency sent us the file and asked for uh, a review and a recommendation. We didn't know this uh, this brother, and we didn't know the people in his stake, uh, but the, the brethren wanted our input as the general authorities who were really close to the to that part of the world. And as we looked into what had happened, we learned that the man who had been excommunicated had uh, had gotten into an argument with the other man that had started in, in as at a at a low level of of disagreement and that grew to frustration and finally it became a really raging anger that these two men were just so angry with each other that uh, they you know they, they were worried about what one was saying to other people about them, and it just it kind of got out of control. And uh, this led to a, a, a disciplinary council, and the, the one man who felt especially hurt 
and was, even though he was kind of out of control, uh, he demanded that the other man be excommunicated. And, and without going into the details, the, the council, the state presidency and high council, decided, okay, he should be excommunicated. But then the other man was so angry that he, he appealed the decision. He was going to keep taking their, their, you know, venting their anger and bordering on hatred uh, to the highest court. And so the brethren sent it back to us, and we, we reviewed it. And then uh, I had the assignment to call this the stake president, who was new. He had not been the stake president at the time of this decision. Uh, but as, as we talked, he told me how this had happened, and it all began with a misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. And then they, because of this kind of unwillingness to forgive each other, it grew and grew and got out of control in the way I've described. Uh, so uh, we finally decided to recommend, and this first presidency sustained it, that they should start over and have another disciplinary council, which, which seemed like a strange resolution. We weren't going to go back into the facts and arguments and all of that. It, it, they would they would start over, and 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 then he called a few weeks later after we'd counseled together, and he'd agreed to hold another count, uh, disciplinary council. He told me what had happened on the evening of this second council when these two brethren were in. Uh, in the same place they'd been some time earlier, and the, the, uh, the place was probably still fuming with, with the anger they had brought before. They, they sat smoldering in the, in the waiting area as the, their stake leaders discussed the issues and what to do. And then suddenly, one of these men, this is again what the stake president told me, one of these men got up He went over to the other man. He knelt down in front of him. And he said, what are we doing to each other? Can you ever forgive me for this? And the, and the other man started to cry. And they began talking softly. And then they embraced. And they talked more. And within a few minutes, they knocked on the door uh, of the room where the other brethren were deliberating. The stake president opened the door, and he saw these two men arm in arm, the tears running down their cheeks. And he was, he was stunned. What has happened? They came into the room, and the other stake leaders saw them. And, and everybody in the room started to cry. And I don't know everything that happened after that. But it, it was a clear witness to me of what happens when the Lord brings his charity into a room where it is needed. And, the, and it, I don't know everything else, but these men were ready for this to happen, and they responded to it. You know, sometimes that energy is there, and we don't hear it. We don't feel it. We're not open to it. We've shut all those doors. But these two still had enough of the milk of human kindness still in them. They still cared about the Lord enough to reach out and hear him. Um, I think they possessed that charity uh, from then on. Elder Hafen, we appreciate so much that story. That really, really moves us. And I, I want to ask another question about something that we have noticed that many people 
are dealing with in our world today, and that is this whole idea of perfectionism. And I remember when I read your book years ago, I think I've read it two or three times, the one on the broken heart, um, you had a chapter in there that really caught my attention. And I think, if I remember correctly, the the title of the chapter was Two Cheers for Excellence. And I I was very interested in that because I uh, I see this all around me with people feeling like excellence is the most important thing. Perfectionism is what we have to seek for all the time. In fact, we even misconstrue the meaning of be therefore perfect, and we just don't get it right. But can you comment on that two cheers for excellence? <laughs> uh, well, that was a long time ago that you read that chapter, Scott. Just, but uh, yeah, I remember, I remember that. And I... Uh, what I was concerned about then and what I still am concerned about in the world we live in is I think that uh, uh, the American society and other, the other Western societies um, have become consumed with uh, competition against one another. And it just goes really contrary to what we've been talking about, the desire to, to, to come to the Lord and have him see our weaknesses and... Uh, and I guess I was thinking in general terms that when um, it was kind of a plea for for charity, because if we're not open to the Lord's direction and willing to come to Him and show Him our weaknesses, then He He's not going to strengthen us. You know, you, 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 I guess it was in uh, Ether chapter twenty-seven where uh, the, the Lord says to Moroni. Moroni's pretty frustrated. <laughs> I think he's feeling he, he wouldn't he wouldn't do too well in the stake riding competition because he said the Gentiles will mock my words. Uh, and so, what does the Lord say to him? Um, I give unto men weakness that they may be humble, and if they will come unto me, you know, and acknowledge the weakness, uh, I will show unto them. He'll tell us more. And that's why I've sometimes thought that when, when uh, we're feeling really distressed and discouraged and we're seeing all the things we don't do well at and we worry about it, we aren't going to compete in whatever ways we feel we need to. Uh, when we are seeing our weaknesses, that's not necessarily a sign or a clue that the Lord doesn't care about us anymore. It might, on the contrary, be evidence that he's closer to us than he's been before because he wants to help us see our weaknesses, and then he will help us overcome them. And he's in, in, I think it's in that very verse in chapter 27. He says, I give unto men weakness that they may be humble, and if they will come unto me and acknowledge the weakness, then I will make weak things strong unto them. My grace is sufficient. Th those are all words related to the, the perspective on the atonement that we have been alluding to here and there that it's all about our learning and growth. And it, when we get so uh, caught up in and glued to the world and its competitiveness, we can tune out all the signals that are trying to help us see what's, wh wh what's wrong, what do we need to work on, instead of, of only wanting to, to do better compared to other people. It's just contrary to the spirit of the gospel. And in addition, it really interferes with the growth process that we are engaged in 
if we understand what's going on, on the covenant path. It's the covenant path is not a is not a place where we dash to a finish line and see if we can get ribbons for the first three places and everybody else has failed. Um, so I, that's probably what I was thinking about. We live in a time where many are having faith crises. And it seems to be fed by the internet where they can talk to other people who are having faith crises and they begin to see one flaw after another and then they find themselves in turmoil. And I know you've been very concerned about this and have written a wonderful book called Faith is Not Blind, addressing this. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and connect it to what we've been saying here about the atonement. Well, thank you, Maureen. As I reflect on our conversation today, uh, this Easter day, uh, and reflect on the atonement, we have, uh, we've been seeing a, a path of growth, uh, describing it as w what the atonement does to mark the path. He marked the path and led the way at every point he finds. Uh, that applies today in this one of the, the kind of dark clouds that makes things so difficult and disturbing everywhere with the, that we see is the crisis of faith, uh, loss of confidence uh, in each other, loss of confidence in the gospel and the scriptures. And there is a way to uh, process the experiences we're having uh, by recognizing how we've gone from innocence and kind of good feelings that have, don't run that deep, but now we're into uh, crises that are really wrenching and difficult. Uh, if we persist and we understand a little bit of what's going on and have some faith about getting through it, the Lord will help us get through this. Uh, and, and the darkness can change into light if we will allow him to help us. Then we learn from what we've gone through and we we come out of the clouds uh, of that darkness into the clear valley and the light of the simplicity beyond complexity. It's a, it's a journey. It's just like the one we discussed about the atonement. In fact, I think the atonement has a lot to do with it. It's another manifestation of how the Lord works with us through a process of learning from experience and, until, we are, until we're more like him and we've had to struggle through some things that were hard and he helps us. We have so appreciated this time together with Elder Bruce C. Hafen. This is Scott and Maureen Proctor. We are excited to continue to study the Old Testament throughout these coming weeks. Next week we'll be studying Exodus chapters 18 through 20 in a lesson called All That the Lord Hath Spoken, We Will Do. Our great thanks to Paul Cardall, again, for the music which accompanies this podcast, and to our producer, Michaela Proctor Hutchins. Have a great week, a joyous and wonderful Easter, and see you next time. <laughs>